Welcome to the Hoop Commitment. I'm your host, Mike Nielsen. Join me every week to get inside the greatest minds in basketball nutrition, training, and leadership to elevate your game and improve the way you eat, train, and lead. Welcome to episode 69. They say that offense wins games and defense wins championships. But how many of us intentionally train to become better defenders? All of us know what to do to become better offensive players. You do ball handling and shooting drills. But do you know how to train to become a better defensive player? Well, today's guest is Roberto Yetzi, and he's going to share his training progressions and thought process on how to create stronger, quicker, and better balanced defenders. Roberto is a strength and conditioning coach for Jerusalem Basketball and is the host of the Sport Vitamin Podcast. He's previously worked with several other professional teams and in 2018 was a strength coach for the U18 Italian national team. I spent the entire episode asking him about mobility and warm-up routines, strength and conditioning exercises, and the agility drills he uses with his players to help them become lockdown defenders. Here's Roberto Yetzi. Roberto, welcome to the Hoop Commitment Podcast. How you doing? Doing great, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm a big fan of your show, so I'm really excited for it. Well, this is going to be a great episode because I'm a big fan of your show. I'm so grateful I got to be on your podcast a few weeks ago. And so it's kind of cool that you're returning the favor and coming on my show. Yeah, it's great. I love the episode that we recorded together a few weeks ago. And again, I'm super excited for this one. Well, this is the best part of being a podcaster is being able to interview people like you. I've admired your work on social media. And then I got to be part of your basketball-specific strength conditioning conference last summer, which was so awesome. So we became friends over the past year. But I'd love to find out your basketball journey and how you became a basketball strength and conditioning coach. First of all, I grew up being a baseball player. And I played as a professional player for a few years. But uh, really soon I realized that I couldn't make it for a living. At least I couldn't make it for a living in Italy. So I had to do something else. And I've been always fascinated by working out. And, and I'm a huge basketball fan. So I decided to go to college and start studying sports science. And after my bachelor's degree, I got the opportunity to join a team while I was living in Rome. And that's where my journey started. So I worked for seven years for this youth academy. It's called Stella Azura. It's one of the best youth clubs in Europe. And after seven years, I started my professional career. So I started my professional career in Verona, where I also met my fiance. I spent there just one year working with a second division team. And then from there... I moved to Torino. I worked for two years in Torino. And then I actually had a three-year deal with that team. But then during the last summer I spent there, I was in Latvia with the under-18 national team. It was August. I was supposed to go back to Torino in a few weeks. And I got a call by one of the best strength coaches in Europe, who is uh, Francesco Cuzzolini. He also spent two seasons with the Raptors as the head strength coach. And uh, he said, if you want, you can have an interview with the Hapoel Jerusalem. And of course, I said yes right away. And the day after, I had an interview with a GM. And I was lucky enough, he liked me. And uh, he decided to sign me as the head strength coach here in Jerusalem. So 
Life changed in the blink of an eye. All of a sudden, I found myself coming over here to Jerusalem instead of going back to Turin from Latvia. Fast forward three years, I'm still here in Jerusalem, and I'm doing this interview with you today. Oh, that's a crazy journey. Most people, they might change cities. You're changing countries. What's that like? Do you have to learn the new language? Growing up, I was fortunate because I've been moving around Italy a lot. Like uh, Jerusalem, for example, is the 17th city I live in. Before it was because of my father's job, and now, of course, it's because of my job. So I'm pretty used to move all around the, the cities. And here in Israel, it was not a problem. Like the, the language was not a problem because a lot of people speak English. And also on my team, I have a, a lot of American players. For example, this year we have uh, eight Americans out of uh, 14 players. Last year, we had nine Americans out of uh, 14 players. So we basically speak English. I didn't have to study Hebrew or take Hebrew classes because we just speak English. When I played in Germany, I played in Dusseldorf, and we had Americans on the team, and everyone from different countries all spoke English as well. And so I didn't realize how challenging it would be to play in another country where they didn't speak English until the day that our coach was upset with us. We had not played well the night before, mm-hmm. and he decided he was going to run the whole practice in German. And so that was an experience because you think basketball is this universal language that you could play without even saying words, which is probably true if you're playing on the playground or during a game. But during practice, when he was explaining drills and he was speaking super fast, and I understand very little German, I realized how helpless I would be on the basketball court if they weren't speaking English. So I can imagine you. How many languages do you speak? Uh, Just Italian and English. I understand a little bit of Spanish, but I can't speak it. I love how you say just two. Most people only speak one. So you speak 100% (laughs) more languages than I do. (laughs) Well, today I'd love to talk about how you train players to become better defenders. I've really enjoyed following you on Instagram. You do a lot of great progressions. You focus a lot on lateral quickness and mobility. And so I'd love to hear just what comes to your mind when you think about basketball-specific training for defense. The first thing that comes to my mind is closeout. Closeout, I think, is the most important part of when we talk about basketball defense because it's really vital for your defense. It's where the offense gets the biggest advantage. It's a situation where teams spend a lot of fouls. And most of the time, your best player is not the best defensive player. So he's going to spend a lot of fouls during closeouts. And if he spends a lot of fouls, that means that he's not going to stay on the court for a lot of minutes, which is not good for your team, of course. Potentially, there is a closeout after every pass. And there are like five passes each possession. We have 50 possessions a game. Uh, you can do the math. So we have a lot of uh, opportunities to take an advantage if we play offense, of course. So that's the most important part of the defense. So most of my drills are designed around closeout, you know, and this is a process that started many years ago. I would say like seven or eight years ago when I was uh, in Italy working in Rome with a good friend of mine who was the head coach of the under-17 team back then. Right now, he's the skills development coach of Basconia in the EuroLeague. His name is Alessandro Nocera. And uh, together, we started designing these closeout drills. And of course, with our under-17 team, but uh, at the end of the season, that team ended up being the national champions. And we had a great defense, great one-on-one defense. We were very, very good on closeouts. So tell me about some of the factors that go into having a successful closeout. What are some of the skills that you're trying to teach your players? 
First of all, they need to understand how to accelerate and decelerate. It might seem simple, but it's not. It's very important to understand that one of the most difficult part of a closeout is decelerating because I can accelerate. And if I'm very powerful, I'm a very powerful athlete, then it's going to be very, very hard to decelerate and control my body, especially if I'm working with a young athlete that don't have that ability to decelerate. They don't have that amount of eccentric strength that they need to decelerate. And then they don't really have a, a good control of their body for a lot of reasons. One is the lack of strength. Another one is because they're still growing, so they don't really have a great control of their body. So that's the main thing. So when I start to teach closeout drills, phase one is just about sprinting and decelerating and stopping and control the body. And that comes before moving laterally, before sliding, before doing crossover steps. It's just sprint, decelerate, and stop. And that's the most important thing. And most of the time, it's also the, the hardest thing to do. With the deceleration, are you teaching body mechanics as far as where players should be putting their hands, how they should be leaning? Or is that something that the basketball skill coach is actually teaching, how they should have their hands and where they should be placed? Usually, especially when I work with uh, young athletes, I try to work together with the head coach or the assistant coach. So we design the drill together and we are on the court at the same time. So because sometimes, you know, I'm a strength coach, I'm not a basketball coach or a skills coach. So I can see something that the coach don't see. For example, I want you to stay lower. I want you to push out stronger with this leg or with the other leg. And uh, some other times, maybe they can see something that I don't see. Like you said, like raise your arm or put your hands like this and, and this kind of things. For example, one thing that I learned is that uh, raising the hand or not raising the hand during the closeout makes all the difference in the world. Because, for example, shooting an uncontested shot that the offensive player have 20% more opportunities to score the basket. So having a contested or uncontested shot, there is a 15% difference between the two shots. That's an amazing statistic. I love how you're using numbers and actual game data from what you're seeing, how many passes are, how many defensive possessions to be able to dictate how you're actually training your athletes. So after you work on the acceleration, the deceleration, they're able to move in that sagittal plane to stop. What's the next breakdown to be able to teach them how to be successful closing out? The second step, so phase two, is to do the same thing, but sliding and then doing crossover steps. Again, I want them to be powerful doing a defensive slide. Then I also want them to be able to decelerate and stop after a defensive slide or a crossover. But these have to come after phase one, as I said before. So phase one, sprint, decelerate, phase two, slide or crossover step and again decelerate and then during phase three we put all the pieces of the puzzle together you know so we have a complete closeout for example during phase three it's just spring closeout defensive slides spring closeout or a crossover step and uh and stick so i want them to control their position but it's without the basketball usually i work without the basketball i call them agility exercises but actually are change of direction exercises and I do that just because I want the final part of the drill, so where they react to the basketball or to the offensive player, to be a part that they train with the head coach or the assistant coach. Because there's nothing more specific than basketball itself. So I don't think they can improve their closeout drill if I, I don't know, blow a whistle or tell them right or left. It's not the same thing. 
I just want them to have the ability to control different movements on the court, to have a big human literacy that they can use eventually on the basketball court. But the ultimate goal is to play basketball, okay? So if I want a specific drill, I want this drill to be with a basketball coach. So when the, there is a basketball involved, that's the part that uh, is guided by the basketball coach. So a lot of people would teach the shuffle on defense, but I think there's some misconception about the crossover step. Tell me about how you implement that when players should be shuffling versus crossing over. A lot of people think that in order to play defense, you just need to shuffle. But to me, it doesn't make sense, you know, because if I'm shuffling and you are running while you're dribbling the ball, there's no way I can guard you. You're going to be faster no matter what. I can be the best athlete on the planet. I'll be slower than you because you're running, I'm shuffling or sliding. If we watch a basketball game, a high-level basketball game or also a youth game, we're going to see there are athletes do crossover steps naturally. I think nobody taught them how to do those crossover steps, but they just come organically. They learn how to do it just playing the sport. But then if we point those movements out to the player, they say, no, I was not doing a crossover step. I was sliding, you know? So you just need to show them footage of their games. And then they realize, oh, yeah, actually I'm doing crossover steps. I'm not, I'm not sliding in defense. Maybe I do one defensive slide after one dribble, and then I start running with the offensive player. And if I'm running, that's a crossover step for me, okay? Because my torso is facing the opponent while my legs are going towards the basketball or towards the corner. This is my mind process when I talk about crossover steps. I totally agree with you. I think about, for me, when I maybe delineate the two is how much distance do you need to get in one step? Or if you're guarding full court, the further you are away from the basket, the more you're going to be doing that crossover step. Because like you said, if I'm in a race and my opponent gets to sprint and I have to shuffle, I'm going to lose every time. But if I could side run, and then when I want to change direction, go into a shuffle, well, I'm going to be way more successful. And then the closer I get to the basket, the more I'm probably going to be taking smaller steps where I'm not crossing over. And so I think that delineates it for me. The further I am away from the basket, the more I'm going to be using that crossover step or that side run. Yeah, but sometimes also if I play off court and I get blown by by the offensive player, I need to recover. And the only way I have to recover and face again my opponent is to do a crossover step and start running. I love it. And if we think about basketball as a game of skills, and as a strength coach, we want to be able to enhance those skills, or in some cases, give the athletes the ability to even do the skill. And so if we never practice a side run into a shuffle or a shuffle into a side run and don't teach them the finer points, they'll never reach their maximum potential on defense. And so I love that you're breaking down those different movement structures. Before we even get to some of the complicated movements like deceleration, acceleration, if we started at the beginning of mobility, do the players actually have the range of motion to get into a deep lunge when they're decelerating or get into a lateral lunge as they shuffle? Are there mobility exercises or are there mobility deficits that you are working on with your players to help them become better defenders? Sure. The first two mobility deficits that I see in my players are lack of ankle doors deflection and lack of internal and external hip mobility. And these are things that we address on a daily basis. So every day my players do some kind of ankle mobility exercise or some kind of hip mobility exercise, whether it's during the weightlifting session or before practice during the warm-up, but it's something that we address on a daily basis. And most of the time, these two mobility deficits 
are those that prevent our players to control the athletic position, which is the position where it all starts from. So what does that look like on a daily basis? Are you doing traditional calf stretches with the player has their hands against the wall? Are you doing foam rolling stuff? Are you using any kind of specific equipment to be able to help mobilize the ankle joints and the hip joints? I don't use a static stretching. I don't use static stretching at all. The only day of the week where I use static stretching is during recovery days, but it's more for a mental aspect. You know, I want my athletes to control the positions that they reach. So I don't want to stretch to create mobility, especially because if we stretch to create mobility, then we're going to affect our fascia. And we know that if we affect our fascia and fascia can be affected by stress, pressure, or vibration or load, it's, uh, I'm going to change the elastic property of the fascia. And this is something that is absolutely I don't want. So I want my players to control the range of motion that they have. So I ask them to work through their range of motion, get to 90, 95% of their maximum, but don't stretch. And then once they reach that position, they can control that position, then they can move to another one, to a new position. And so I use a lot of mobility drills, during the pregame or pre-practice warm-up, we use a lot of dynamic stretching. Again, never static stretching. And uh, usually I implement the mobility work during the weightlifting sessions because uh, most of the time I don't have a lot of time. Even though I, I work with the professional athletes, and most of the people can think, yeah, those are professional athletes. They have like eight, 10 hours a day. But it, it's not true. You know, I just have 45 minutes in the weight room with them and 10 minutes on the court to warm them up. That's it. And that's every single day. So I need to put a lot of stuff during those 45 minutes. You know, the weightlifting session, the warm-up, the, a little bit of recovery between sessions. And so I started using mobility drills in between sets. So, for example, I have uh, upper body exercise, core exercise, lower body exercise, mobility drill. And then they start all over again. This is how I am more efficient with my time and with my athletes' time. Can you give us an example of an ankle mobility or hip mobility that you use with your players? I think some of our strength coaches on the call are going to be thinking about traditionally static wall stretch for the ankle, or they might be a FRC practitioner. They might find that stretch and do isometric pails and rails. What would you consider a mobility exercise, like a dynamic flexibility exercise for the ankle that you would use with your players? Pails and rails are a good example. For example, I, I use a lot of isometrics with my athletes. I use a lot of also eccentric exercises. Those are really helpful to gain more degrees of range of motion and also to control those new range of motion that we, we have gained. And also, sometimes I also combine the two. I combine uh, some eccentric exercises with uh, some isometrics at the end of the range of motion. And again, for example, one... Uh, one exercise that I like a lot for uh, hip mobility is the 90-90 stretch. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, that's one of my go-to exercises when it comes to internal and external, hip internal and external rotation. Do you give your players homework? Are they responsible for doing any kind of mobility work on their own, or is it all done at the gym? It's all done at the gym. If they ask me for exercises, of course, I give them all the tools that they can use at home. But uh, most of the time, I like to work in person with my athletes. And I want to see what they're doing. I want to be able to give them the right cue in order to have the perfect movement. You know, because uh, sometimes 
especially if they don't have control of that position. They don't even know what part of the body I want to fire, which part of the body has to work on that specific uh, position, you know. We heard a little bit about the mobility piece and you incorporate it into the warm-up. What does a typical warm-up look like pre-practice for your guys? Oh, very short. It's very short because most of the time we lift right before uh, getting on the basketball court. And I also know that most of the players hate the pre-practice warm-up. So (laughs) it's very short, you know, just uh, five minutes of some dynamic stretching. And I do this especially for those three or four players that had at least lifted before. And then we do some speed ladder exercises just to warm them up a little bit and to prime their uh, nervous system. And then maybe we, we do some uh, closeout drills and then they're ready to go. And then they, they start with the health coach. How many days a week are your guys lifting? Are they doing it every day before practice or is it three or four times a week, two or three times a week? Two times a week is mandatory. And I have players lifting three times a week, four times a week, and also have players lifting five times a week, which means that they lift also on game days. We play twice a week. So it depends. It depends on the player. But two times a week is mandatory for everyone. And tell me about when they're in the weight room. Obviously, you want to build robust athletes that can do all the different movement patterns that they need on the court. We need a general overall strength. You need agility, quickness, power, reaction, balance. But what are you doing specifically for defense when you're in the weight room? If you're thinking about, hey, these are a couple of the drills that I know would impact the way that they guard. What does that look like? This is something that I address specifically during the preseason. For example, I have three phases during the preseason. The first phase, phase one, is a loading phase. Phase two is an intensification phase. And then phase three is an explosive phase. And those three phases are the same basically on the in the weight room and then on the court. For example, during phase one, the loading phase, in the weight room, I'm going to use a lot of uh, isometric exercises together with some, for example, hypertrophy exercises. And this is phase one. And when we go on the court, we try to use isometrics and doing closeout drills. Okay, so it means sprint, stop, and control your body. That's the isometric part during the closeout drill. During phase two, which is the intensification phase, we keep using isometric and we start using eccentric strength. So we do a lot of eccentric work in the weight room. And that's when I'm going to focus on the eccentric part. So again, sprint or slide, control the body. But now I'm going to use, for example, a band. So the acceleration will be even higher than before. So the sprint or the slide will be assisted by a band. So that the speed will be higher. And then the third part, the explosive part, I'm going to focus on uh, rate of force development in the weight room. And on the court, I'm going to focus on the explosive part of the closeout. So close out, slow down, control your body, and then explode to a different direction. I love that progression. Tell me about how long each one of those phases typically lasts for. So if you're in that loading phase, is that two, three, four weeks? What, is, what does that timeline look like? It depends on how long is the preseason is. Most of the time, I have six or seven weeks during the preseason, which means that each phase is around two weeks, maybe two weeks and a half. I love the progression that I hear when you're doing your agility stuff, the progression that you're thinking about in the weight room. Typically, we're thinking about progression for younger athletes. But by the time you get to the pros, 
what we see on social media are all these high level, crazy exercises. We don't typically think about cutting stuff back down to the foundation. Why is progression so important? First of all, even though they are professional athletes, oftentimes they don't master the basics. I mean, they got to that level because they're good at maybe one specific thing, like they are great shooters, you know, or they're great defensive players, or they have an amazing ball handling. But then they have a a lack of strength. They have a lack of mobility. They're not good at defense. They're not good defensive players. So there's always something that we can improve, even though they are professional athletes. And then because they're professional athletes and that's their craft, that's their job, they're most of the time they're really willing to get better. And defense, as we said so far, is really hard. You know, there is a lot involved in defense. So that's one of those aspects they always want to work on. And I always start with the basics. As I said before, maybe they're great shooters, but they don't master the defensive slides. They don't know how to do a proper crossover step. They don't know maybe the right technique to decelerate after a sprint. And those are all aspects of the game that uh, they're willing to work on. And uh, I like to help them to get better at those drills and uh, those aspects of their game. You mentioned the agility ladder. I heard you say band. Are there other certain tools that you use on a consistent basis to help players become better defenders? I use cones, a lot of cones, <laughs> to create my drills. Uh, one of my favorite drills, it's pretty similar to the pro agility test. I call it 5-10-5. So instead of facing the cone, they face, for example, the bench or one of the lines. So they start with a crossover step, and then there is a change of direction, another crossover step, another sprint, and so on until the end of the drill. And I can also tweak this exercise, asking my player to do a slide instead of crossover steps, or I can also mix them up, you know, ask, okay, you're going to slide to the right and crossover step to the left and then slide again. And I can do a lot of different progressions just with one simple drill. And then I can also tweak the distance. You know, I start usually with five meters, 10 meters, and five meters. I can also tweak it to three, six, three, for example, which is another exercise that I like, which is basically the same, but with shorter distances. Are you using those same drills as assessment or tests? Are there anything that you're tracking or measuring to be able to test someone's agility or reaction quickness? Yeah, it depends. If I have a young athlete, that most of the time is also a low loader, I have the chance to test him more often. I have the chance to test him every week or every two weeks. And with them, I do the pro agility test and also the lean agility test. Again, every week or every other week. With the high loaders, so maybe veteran players or also young players play more than 25 minutes a game, I don't really have time to test them during the season. And also, they don't really want to get tested during the season. So um, the ultimate test for them is the game. Well, I love that you spend so much time with your guys. I love that quote that says, the test is the exercise and the exercise is the test. And so if you're doing these drills and you're not just telling them, hey, go do it, and then you're turning your head and looking somewhere else, if you're actually watching the quality of movement, that's maybe the best way to assess this, to be able to have your eyes on them and see them progress. So tell me about the reaction part of it. I love that first progression you gave, which was, can they decelerate the motion in the sagittal plane? Are they able to be able to side run and shuffle? The last piece of it was the reaction part. Is that how you're finishing out most of your drills? If you talk about the pro agility drill, the lane agility, 
Do you start out with them knowing what to do and then move into reaction? How would that progression work on a drill like that? Yeah, absolutely. The first part will be a no reaction drill, no reactive drill. So they will start the movement and they will choose if they want to start right or left. And then I will progress to something with a voice telling them, okay, right, left, or react just to the basketball. Uh, I have another player facing them with the basketball. And uh, of course, if you dribble left, they start going left. If if you dribble right, they start going right. And then I always like to finish with a very specific drill, a drill designed by the coach. And most of the time, it's one-on-one. Okay, so I want them to play one-on-one or just do a real closeout and then start playing one-on-one against their teammate. Tell me about conditioning, because when we think about strength and quickness and balance and vertical, all of these things are great. But if you're too fatigued to use them, you're probably not going to be very effective on the court. How does conditioning come into play with helping your guys become better defenders? Conditioning is uh, crucial. Because you can be as fast as you want, but if you're not able to repeat that effort over and over again during the game, you're not going to be a successful defensive player. Because during the game, okay, you're going to play at the defensive possession. So basically, you're going to do an agility drill, if we want to call it like that. But then you can say to your opponent, hey, stop, I need to rest for one minute. (laughs) and then I'm going to be able to do another agility drill. No, that's something that you can't say during the game. You need to be ready to play. So conditioning is crucial. That's the reason why, for example, sometimes I also like to tweak the tempo of our exercises, and agility drills can also become, for example, conditioning drills. Most of the time, the work-to-rest ratio is 1 to 5, 1 to 6, but sometimes it can also become 1 to 2 or 1 to 3. Okay, so I'm working on agility, I'm working on change of direction, but then it also becomes a a conditioning drill. I'm actually conditioning that agility. Are you using any kind of traditional forms of conditioning, like running sets of lines or having them hop on the bike? Or is it mostly when we get to the season, is it specific stuff that's going to be directly applicable to them being on the court? During the season, we do specific stuff. I'm always involved in the designing of the practice. So I basically control the load that we have during the week. So I tell my coach, for example, okay, today we need to do five and zero or tomorrow we need to do a little bit more of five and five because I want the players to be more conditioned and like that. So I'm lucky because uh, my coach really take into consideration what I prescribe and what I, what I ask. So we condition our athlete very specifically. And what are the markers that are helping you determine whether or not you're doing a lighter practice or heavier practice going up and down? Are you doing any kind of physiological testing with that? Or is it mostly feedback from the guys? Or are you just using your eyes to see how well they look recovered, how their quality of movement? We don't do conditioning tests during the season. We just do yo-yo intermittent tests in the preseason. But then during the season, I use a lot the RPE. And I also use a wellness questionnaire on a daily basis. This is how I track the fatigue of our athlete. And then, of course, also the external load as far as how many minutes they're playing during games. As I said before, we play twice a week, so it's pretty easy. Sometimes I feel like it's harder for strength coaches that work in a team that plays just once a week to design a, a good week of practices, you know. Because if you play every three days, you already have the schedule. You know that you're a high loaders the day after a game. 
they will have a recovery session. And then two days after the game, they're going to have a hard practice. And then there is another game. So it's not that hard to manage that week, you know. What are some of the questions that your players have to answer on the RPE scale? There are three main questions. So quality of sleep, mood, and soreness. I love how efficient that is. So every day the guys come in, they answer three questions. And then from there, is it the whole staff looking at it? Is it just you? I mean, how are you using that data? No, I just look at that data. And just in case I have a player scoring very high or very low in one of those questions, then I report it to the coaching staff because that means that maybe there's something that we need to address, especially if they score very, very low. Man, this is such great information. It's fun because I'm asking the questions for the podcast, but I'm really asking for myself. (laughs) Either feeling good, like, oh, perfect, that's what I'm doing, or I'm taking notes like, oh, I got to add that in. Is there anything else I'm missing? If you're talking to a young strength coach out there, or even an old guy like me, is there any good words of wisdom that you could leave us with if we want to be able to help our basketball players become better defenders? Watch games and study the game. Because most of the time, I know that a lot of strength coaches get caught up with uh, sets and reps. They spend tons of hours in the weight room and they become very far from what happens on the court. But we can really have an impact on the success of our athletes, teaching them how to move on the court. It's not just about sets and reps in the weight room. We can also have a huge impact on the court. That's such great advice that I need to hear often because... So many times I think about the paradigms that I used to train in because it was the way I was taught. It was the way I had studied. And so I was teaching movement patterns. But when I really looked on the basketball court, that's not what they were doing. And so I think for sure there's going to be what we call gaposis. There's going to be a gap between the function of basketball and everything we do in the weight room. We know that the only thing that's specific for basketball is basketball. So there's going to be a gap. But the further that gap gets, the less is probably going to transfer. So I love that idea of being able to really keep pinpointing what's the end game is how do we make a better at basketball? And it sounds like you're doing a phenomenal job at that. Yeah, I agree. 100%. Man, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for being a good friend. It's been a really fun journey being able to get to know you. Where can our listeners find out more about you? I'm really active on Instagram. They can find me Roberto underscore Yezzi, which is I-E-Z-Z-I 34. That's my nickname on Instagram. I try to post most of my drills there. And also I have an hashtag, which is Rob's Library, where I post all the books that I read. I stole this actually from Coach Michael Hill from Georgetown University. He's the one who inspired me to create this hashtag. And they also can find my podcast, Sport Vitamins, which uh, you mentioned before on Spotify and uh, iTunes and Google Podcasts. And that's a podcast where I interview some of the people that inspire me in the sports industry. And I try to discover their journey towards their final goal, which is becoming a professional athlete or a coach or a strength coach. I love it. And I could tell you at least one of the episodes was pretty dang good. It was one you and I did. So, uh... <laughs> Yeah, thanks again for having me on the show. Thanks again just for everything you contribute to the game of basketball. And just can't wait to watch your success. Congratulations on a great season so far. I hope you finish out strong. Thank you very much. Now that's a wrap on episode 69. And I hope you'll join me next week so we can prep for your New Year's commitment. Not a resolution, but a commitment. 
right now is the time to start planning for 2021. So in the next episode, I'm going to give you my top three tips on how to ensure that next year is the best yet. And if my podcast is any predictor of how the year is going to go, we're in really good shape because my first guest of 2021 is one of the top 50 basketball players of all time. He's a Hall of Famer, Dream Teamer, and is the NBA's all-time leader in steals and assists. Do you know who I'm talking about yet? Of course you do. It's the one and only John Stockton. We spent over an hour talking about how basketball is a great teacher of life, and he tells story after story about the moments that shape who he is. So if you haven't already, hit subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss this episode. And to all of you who are committed, we'll earn your X. Ex-